Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix died at the age of 27, and he lived a life full of close calls. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Eight would be the number of back alley goons his hard as nails manager Michael Jeffrey would fight off to live to work for Jimmy one more day. And another one would be the number of UFOs he saw skate through the sky outside his childhood home with his brother as co-witness. He'd be a lifelong true believer of the impossible, the improbable, the otherworldly. He had those earth blues. Another would be the number of phone calls the Lucchese crime family would need to make in order to rearrange the pecking order of Jimmy's tour and give an untested band a taste of the good life. And 17 would be the number of days Jimi Hendrix would have left to live after Eva Sundquist confronted him backstage in Sweden with a photo of their love child, all totaling 27. On this, our ninth episode of season one, Back Alley Goons, UFOs, Crime Family Influence, and the always searching Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Michael Jeffrey wasn't worrying too much about the other seven guys right at this moment, and the other seven guys who wanted to kick his ass. His concern was more squarely placed on the guy with the axe, the eighth guy, 
Guy brought an axe to a fist fight. But maybe Jeffrey would up the ante and turn it into a gunfight. He slid his left hand underneath his suit jacket and felt his small revolver nestled neatly in his belt. It always calmed him down, touching the revolver's handle, just grazing his hand over it, validated his paranoia, made him feel taller than his 5'6 frame, settled him down no matter the situation. Whether it was a particularly tough negotiation meeting for one of his artists, or a moment like this when his life was in immediate danger. The goon with the axe fake lunged forward like he was ready to attack. Jeffrey jumped away. The goon guffawed. He made Michael Jeffrey flinch. Two of the other goons seized the opportunity and went in for a pop. One grabbed Jeffrey's suit coat by the lapel to pull him closer, and the other planted his knuckles firmly in Jeffrey's neck. Went for the job, but missed. Jeffrey scuttled back further down the back alley they had found themselves in. A dead end. He had nowhere to escape to. In the nightclub next to them hummed with the din of music and loud voices, the throngs oblivious to the scuttlebutt happening out back. Jeffrey straightened his suit jacket, tasted blood in his mouth. He had bit down on his tongue when that guy popped him. It throbbed and bled, and the brute twirled the axe in his hand. The group moved closer in on Jeffrey. You boys really want to be doing this right now? Jeffrey yelled in his South London accent, Kurt and Frank. Do you know who the fuck I am? Be smart. Walk away. Walk away now and you won't wake up with ice picks in your balls tomorrow morning. He lived for moments like this. The moments where he got to be the hero, got to defy the odds, got to dirty up his suit jacket and muss up his hair, maybe let it bleed a little, got to cook up a whopper of a story to regale his friends with later. He kept the details fuzzy, of course. It was his life, his story, and he passed it down the way he wanted to. Did it really happen that way? Who cares? People only cared if the story was good. Ride that serpent, hear his command. He's breaking loose, it ain't no use. And the stories would get passed down from friend to friend and acquaintance to acquaintance and become increasingly awesome. Did you hear about that time, that time that Mike Jeffrey took on a 300-pound son of a bitch with one hand? That time that some motherfucker came at Mike Jeffrey with a crowbar? And that guy regretted his decision for the rest of his life. The time that Mike Jeffrey avoided an audit by making sure his books were all written in Russian. That time that Mike Jeffrey could have taken down the Egyptian president with his bare hands, but he got called off at the last minute. And that time Mike Jeffrey burnt his own nightclub to the ground and walked away intact, laughing maniacally all the way to the bank with the insurance payout money. A lot of Jeffrey's life seemed fantastical, and much of it was. Separating fact from fiction was far from easy with Jeffrey. He'd wind up his tall tales and deliver them from safely behind his dark prescription glasses. He'd talk about his time in the Intelligence Corps in the British Army, called up for service at 18 years old, just a kid from Peckham, a diverse slice of South London. His stories were juicy, guarded. Stories about covert operations in Egypt during the Suez Crisis in 1956. Stories of anarchy managed, of anarchy created, murder, kidnapping, torture. Some James Bond shit about his counter-espionage training to battle the Russians. Even after the army, he rocked the wannabe 007 vibe. Those glasses, camel hair coat, the unfuckwithable confidence, devilishly funny, plus 10 charisma, fondness for little guns. He carried one at all times. Knives were fun, too. Spy gear. You never knew when an electronic bugging device would come in handy. And after the army, he studied under the ruthless manager, Don Arden, learned the ropes of the music management business, was taught valuable lessons about blackmail, extortion, even kidnapping from the best in the biz. Taught so well that Jeffrey stole the animals away from Arden and walked away to tell the tale, 
unscathed, respected, self-made badass. He formed his own crew as he went along, the Michael Jeffrey mob, surrounded himself with guys like the Turk, a big dude who didn't leave home without a jumbo knife and two grisly German shepherds. Jeffrey rolled deep. But right now, in this moment, Jeffrey was an army of one. He'd get through this on his own, all the time fine-tuning the version of the event in his head that he would spread around after the fact. Jeffrey got backed up against the wall, and they came after him, one throwing a punch from his right, another coming in hot from his left. A string beam with a mustache came after his leg and tried to pull him off his feet. Jeffrey hopped on the other foot and was able to scoot away. He put up his hands to fend off more punches. And the goon with the axe seemed to operate as a persuader, a figment, and made no overt moves with his piece. Bruised and bloodied, Jeffrey pulled the pistol from his belt, waved it around, and the goons backed up, hands raised. Axe goon chuckled some more, and Jeffrey kept the gun pointed as he slowly sidestepped around the crew. And the goons moved aside enough so that he would have room to move, an exit, and escape. And he backed up slowly, felt something crinkle and pop in his shoulder kept moving slowly backwards towards the street. But when he had gained enough distance, he turned and bolted. Got his ass out of there quick. Wait till people hear about this shit. Who these goons were, he had no idea. Guys jumped him all the time. Guys who wanted to get paid. Guys who were collecting for someone else. Guys who represented someone else. Rival clubs, rival managers, rival mobs. Jeffrey was sinking down deeper in all of it. And the further he sank, the more enemies he made. And he made friends, too, but his friends weren't jumping him in an alley behind a nightclub. And he would fight off his enemies, live to die another day. His friends close and his enemies closer, as it were. And Jimi Hendrix, he had Jimi Hendrix right where he wanted him. Jimi Hendrix was lying in bed, but he was floating above it, too. From a few feet in the air above the mattress, he looked down on himself, sleeping, wearing a green jacket with pink flowers that clashed creatively with a rainbow-patterned dress shirt, black pants, oversized belt buckle, pointed black boots, his black bolero hat lay next to his head, his afro fuzzed out like a visual representation of one of his guitar effect pedals a white Stratocaster next to him on the other side. His eyes were fluttering under his closed eyelids. His chest rose and fell in a slow, reassuring rhythm. This earthbound body waited, slumped in bed, nothing more than a vehicle to get his soul, his consciousness, from one place to another. And this earthbound body, tired and in need of a recharge. His floating body was spectral, only half there, there, but faded, weightless, drifting. It reminded him of the vision of Brian Jones that had appeared to him during his trip to Morocco. The spectral Jimmy kept floating, like a balloon rising. It went through the ceiling of the house, into the clouds, more clouds, mist, smoke, and then darkness. 
It pushed up through the muddy earth, and then the water, and ocean deep and salty, and then sand, and then sky, wide, blue sky. His translucent body blended into the wisps of cirrus clouds that tore white streaks across the blue canvas. He could breathe through all of it, the water, the sand, and there were no obstructions, no limits, no end, no beginning. If I don't meet you no more in this world, I'll meet you in the next one. Don't be late. Spectral Jimmy went higher, still somewhere in the middle of a constellation, complete in utter darkness, like someone had sucked all the light from the world. The only light came from stars that made up the constellation he found himself within, and the other constellations beyond. And they blinded his eyes and lit up the outline of his floating body. Lights flickered on and off in the distance, stars busy being born and busy dying. I come back to find the stars are misplaced in the smell of a world that's burned. He continued to rise, only to leave the void of space behind. He pushed up through the floorboards and found himself back in that bedroom, looking down on his sleeping body once again, his chest still rising and falling in gentle rhythm. Spectral Jimmy knew things that sleeping Jimmy didn't know, that there was an ocean above them and a galaxy below them. Sleeping Jimmy wouldn't understand a fantasy such as that. When he woke up, he would spend a lot of time trying. Sleeping Jimmy would wake up. His floating spectral double had disappeared. His out-of-body journey felt like a dream as he wiped the sleep from his eyes. It had only been a quick nap, but damn, that was some dream. A phrase popped into his head that he had recently read in Philip Jose Farmer's book, Night of Light. Purplish haze was how the author had described a fictional planet. Jimmy started to piece together the events of his dream, his out-of-body journey, and fixated on the part where he was underneath the sea. Lately, things just don't seem the same. He picked up the strat that had been next to him during his nap and started to write. Purple Haze only became associated with drugs after the fact. It wasn't a drug song, it was a sci-fi song. See, Michael Jeffrey wasn't the only one with fantasies. Jimi Hendrix had fantasies too. As a child, Jimi was obsessed with Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon. As tribute, he named his dog Prince and adopted the nickname Buster after Buster Crab, the actor who had played Flash Gordon in the serialized films. He would dress up in capes and helmets, imagine himself flying through the streets of Seattle and saving those in distress. He kept a notebook chock full of cosmic doodles. As a child of divorce and neglect, it was a way for him to escape an otherwise lonely reality, where nothing seemed permanent or real. Love didn't seem big enough to put everything together, so for as long as he needed them, his daydreams would have to suffice. He spent evenings gazing with wonder outside his bedroom window with his brother Leon, a head full of swashbuckling interstellar adventures. One night, their searching was rewarded with a silver disc that hovered in the backyard. The moonlight reflected off its shiny dome. It sat there about 100 feet off the ground, spinning dizzily, lights flashing, humming, vibrating. Jimmy and Leon's eyes took it all in, believed it, were validated by it. After a minute, it was gone, off, in a flash. From that moment on, Jimmy was a true believer, a believer in something else, something more, something fantastic, something beyond reality. As an adult, he retained the idealism of the true believer. 
He remained smitten with science fiction with other worlds, both real and imagined. He carried copies of the Urantia book, an alternative Bible for the UFO crowd, and the Book of the Hopi featuring myths and legends from the Native American tribe's elders, alternative and ancient texts that strove to understand the origins of life, the meaning of life. Chaz loaned him even more sci-fi books from his impressive collection. He wrote songs about space and sci-fi, other worlds, other realities, the UFO talk and EXP, Up from the Skies and Third Stone from the Sun. He would sing about those earth blues, baby. Don't let your imagination take you by surprise. My head in the cloud, my feet on the pavement. Jimmy's fantasies weren't exactly like Jeffrey's. They weren't fabrications meant to improve his image or massage his ego. They weren't intended to keep people in the dark or hold them at arm's length. Jimmy had a true fondness for fictional realities, something he grew to love as a child and then carried with him into adulthood with childlike wonder. They also offered him a place to retreat to when he couldn't handle the real world. Sometimes they helped make sense of the real world. He'd find solace in women, in his music and drugs, in Michael Jeffrey's smokescreens, in sci-fi and fantasy books. And the more he searched for himself, the more serpentine the path became, and the more important it was to have outlets such as these. Try as he might, however, there were times when he couldn't escape an inevitability. No amount of retreat into fantasy would help. Not even Michael Jeffrey could weasel out of everything. And there really wasn't much anyone could do when some mobbed up tough guy made it very clear on the other end of the phone, you were gonna do exactly as he said, or there would be consequences. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time your time not just to go back to school but to come back and move forward with purdue global purdue's online university for working adults start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu i'm dr sanjay gupta cnn's chief medical correspondent and this is chasing life three out of four u.s adults are considered overweight or have obesity 75 percent of americans dr fatima cody stanford our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full 
person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. (laughs) Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Obviously, Robert Wyatt needed to clean the shit out of his ears. He wasn't listening. Obviously. Drummers, man. Sometimes you had to speak slowly to get them to understand. Dumb it down. Vanilla Fudge was joining the tour. What was so hard to understand about that? Robert twisted his upper lip and squeezed his eyes. Facial distortion, disapproving and disbelieving. Michael Jeffrey, on the other hand, was getting impatient. In this tour of the States that the Jimi Hendrix experience was headlining already had air apparent as support, as well as Robert's band, the art rock godfather, Soft Machine. It was already one sous chef away from too many cooks, and Jeffrey understood that. That said, the Soft Machine set was going to have to get trimmed to make room. Robert pushed back. He wasn't about to make concessions for a big, dumb band like Vanilla Fudge. This was bullshit. Jeffrey wasn't discussing it. Did he stutter? This is Michael Jeffrey talking. And whether or not this latest development is an inconvenience to the easily inconvenienced members of the soft machine or whoever else, Vanilla Fudge was coming on board. Make room, motherfucker. Vanilla Fudge, known for their organ-drenched psychedelic dirge covers of songs by The Beatles, The Zombies, and Curtis Mayfield, thick and heavy like a sweaty Long Island summer night. You may not know Vanilla Fudge by name, but you know Vanilla Fudge from their explosive cover of the Holland Dozier Holland classic, You Keep Me Hanging On, that soundtracked the climactic final scene of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as well as one of the most memorable death scenes in the final season of The Sopranos. Set me free, why don't you, babe? Get out my life, why don't you, babe? Jeffrey was only repeating what he had been told. Someone got tough on him, so he had to get tough on someone else. Shake it off. It was like a transference of a verbal beatdown. And the only way for Jeffrey to feel like less of a loser in the moment was to pass along the order, regain the higher ground, the upper hand. He had taken the call in his office. On the other end of the line was Philip Basile, a member of the Lucchese crime family, New York City, one of the five families, model, of course, for one of the families in the Godfather movies. Basile, owner of clubs, taker of no shit, Associate of Henry Hill, bona fide tough guy, and now convincer of Michael Jeffrey to take his proto prog rock vanilla fudge band on the road. His New York accent came through the other end of the phone, thick, regional, low key. It pushed Jeffrey's South London lilt into a corner. The fudge want to see California, Basile said. I hear your tour is going to California. Why don't you take them with you? They're good boys. And surely you've got plenty of room. Jimi Hendrix can make room. Surely they had plenty of room. Surely this fucking guy was kidding. The tour was already booked, set times in place. Air Apparent and Soft Machine were other bands that Jeffrey was already managing, and everything just fit into place nicely. No way he was cutting any of Jimmy's set. Basile insisted. Jeffrey wasn't listening. Basile got him to listen. The Fudge would join the tour later that month, in August 1968. And Jeffrey wouldn't have to worry about a thing. Forget about it. No issues. No snags. 
Basile would ensure that any problems would be kept far away from Jeffrey's store. Now, if Jeffrey was going to be stupid and say no, if Jeffrey was going to deny the fudge their maiden voyage to the fabled west coast, well, then Basile couldn't promise anything. Who knows what could happen? Tour buses break down, equipment malfunctions, guitar players, clumsy motherfuckers, they just fucking fall off the stage sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Legs get broken, cars start to blow up. Shit happens, you dig? Do this thing for Vanilla Fudge, do this thing for him, and perhaps someday Basile could repay the favor, and he wouldn't forget it. Do the smart thing. Welcome these nice boys with open arms, or else there'd be problems. It was an offer Jeffrey couldn't refuse. Jeffrey could convince Jimmy. Jimmy would listen to him. Jimmy hadn't been listening to Chaz Chandler lately. Chaz, Jimmy's champion and producer and co-manager and for a time flatmate, Chaz was holding a weak hand in this three-way poker match. Chaz wasn't jiving with Jimmy's increasing dependency on drugs, acid mainly. Jimmy said it opened his mind to possibilities, to creativity, to exploration untold, made for more vibrant fantasies and a more tolerable reality. But Chaz knew it also validated Jimmy's fantasies, allowed him to exist in a world of color and noise and vibrating sensation. Sure, maybe it was bold as love, shiny metallic purple armor, ribbons of euphoria, blue life-giving water. Sure, maybe it was all that and more, but it kept Jimmy isolated from certain aspects of reality, aspects of reality that Chaz would witness plain as day. The more LSD Jimmy dropped, the stranger his entourage would become, Dark and persuasive figures like Devin Wilson, the former prostitute who became Jimmy's drug buddy and sometimes girlfriend, an all-around drug and chick gopher. Faces come out in the rain when you're strange. Jimmy would show up to Chaz's New York City apartment with new recruits, dope fiends with hollowed-out eyes, lanky types with shaggy beards who couldn't make eye contact. Short and sneaky types who always seemed to be rubbing their hands together, eyes darting around the room, seeking out a score, something to pawn. Chaz would open his apartment door when Jimmy knocked, and Chaz's pregnant wife, standing at a safe distance behind Chaz, got all heebie-jeebie-like. He couldn't blame her. Even the recording sessions were no longer a sacred place. And the sessions for the experience's third and final album, Electric Ladyland, were full of randos, hangers-on, druggies, friends of friends, other musicians. It may have been a Jimi Hendrix Experience album and name, but it was more accurately a reflection of the melting pot of influence pushing down on Jimi at that moment in time. Steve Winwood, Chris Wood, and Dave Mason from Traffic, Al Cooper, Buddy Miles, Jefferson Airplane's Jack Cassidy, Brian Jones from The Stones. Chaz felt like whatever creative influence he once wielded as Jimi's original manager was now dwindling, fast. Jimi's other manager, Michael Jeffrey, on the other hand, saw drugs as a way to bond with Jimmy. They also kept Jimmy placid, docile, happy, too fucked up to care, too stoned to ask questions. Jeffrey bought the big house in the way hip upstate New York expanse, Woodstock adjacent. It was a hip purchase, no doubt, but it also gave him a place to stash Jimmy to keep him happy. Jeffrey didn't stop there. He gave Abby Hoffman and his yippies a donation of 10 grand. He smoked dope, he dropped acid with the musicians. He was like the cool dad. He would take care of you, he'd let you get high, shit, he might even get high with you. Just don't ask any serious questions. Jeffrey got his way and got the Jimi Hendrix experience back together, sorta. Of. Mitch Mitchell came back into the fold on drums, but Jimmy's relationship with Noel Redding was still strained. Jeffrey called Billy Cox back from exile in Nashville and voila, the new experience. 
They got back to that touring lifestyle. America, England, the Atlanta International Pop Festival, the Rainbow Bridge Concert in Hawaii, the Isle of Wight Festival. And the days dragged on. Jimmy was tired, not really feeling it, content in the fantasy world when he would get there and depressed when reality came crashing down on top of it all. When the tour got to Stockholm and Denmark and Germany, surprises very much rooted in the hard, cold, real world were waiting to greet him. He'd collapse from too many sleeping pills. A stage would burn to the ground. A girlfriend would inform him that she had given birth to his child. For Jimi Hendrix, shit was about to get real. The more Eva Sundquist talked, the more Jimi Hendrix seemed like he didn't want to listen. And that lustful gleam that she had seen in his eyes so many times before was fading. She watched his eyes go sullen and removed, like someone had flipped the switch inside his head. She had written him, sent him pictures, tried to get in touch. It was like she was trying to be a pen pal with a brick wall that had no ability or intention to participate. She didn't understand the cold shoulder. He used to send her his tour schedule in advance, let her know when he plays Sweden so they could hook up. And this time she had to track him down. Eva felt like just another hanger-on, desperate to catch a whiff of his aroma. Another nameless crazy wanted to touch him and run home to tell the tale. But she wasn't just another crazy. She wasn't just some random Swedish chick. She knew that she was more. Jimmy wasn't just a rock star to her. She knew that what she and Jimmy had was special. She was his goddess from Asgard. Look, Jimmy, she said, holding a photo in her hands. And Jimmy tried to brush it all off, took a swig from the half-empty whiskey bottle in his left hand. Backstage at the store scene in Stockholm was a zoo. Typical crazy 1970 rock star shit. Controlled chaos, Jimmy, Mitch Mitchell, and Billy Cox, Michael Jeffrey, press agents, roadies bogarting that joint, friends, friends of friends, girls who had been invited by the band, invited by the roadies, invited by the friends, invited by the friends of friends. A baker's dozen of blonde-haired Swedes, venue employees, and other fans who had wormed their way into the hallowed backstage scene. Half of the room was wasted on this pill, that powder, or some drink, and the rest were quickly on their way to oblivion. Eva put her hand on Jimmy's arm as it came back down to rest after another long haul off the rapidly diminishing bottle of whiskey. He's your son, Jimmy, Eva said to him, holding a photo of a toddler. James Daniel Sunquist. look at your son, Jimmy. Jimmy looked at the picture in Eva's hand, unable to take it from her in fear that it may validate what she was saying, make it fact. The baby had Jimmy's eyes, no denying that. His hair, too. It was uncanny. His eyes went wide. He put his right hand on his afro, massaged his scalp, and let out an existential sigh. This was heavy. He had spent a lot of his adult life searching for the ideal version of himself, as well as piecing together what he could call his family. He thought about his own father, the absences, the abuse. Could he ever be a good father? Was he cut out for parenthood? He thought about his recent premonitions, that unshakable feeling that he wouldn't live to see 30, the tarot cards in Morocco, Brian Jones. Would it be responsible to be a father right now? He also thought of another lover, Diana Carpenter, who had recently tracked him down after a show to tell him about his two-year-old daughter, Tamika. 
Diana was a teenage runaway when Jimmy first met her in New York City. Presently, Jimmy's legal team was fighting a paternity suit from Diana in order to get Tamika officially recognized as Jimmy's flesh and blood. And now, Eva, the Asgardian goddess. In the past, he had dedicated shows to Eva, called her name from the stage, even that one time on stage in Stockholm when he announced what hotel he was staying at. All kinds of eager fans would show up at his door that night, but he was really only looking for Eva. Take it and take another little piece of my heart now, baby. Jimmy first met her at a train station in Sweden back during one of the experience's whirlwind tours. He was lost. He asked her for directions. And that face of his, that smile, it summoned strangers, put people at ease. And he was lost and he was searching for his way in a new city that was foreign to him. And she fell for him, the way any woman would have fallen for him if he asked her for directions. Jimmy had that way of asking for directions and making it sound like the overture to an exciting long-term relationship. From there, they were Stockholm lovers. She lost her virginity to him in his hotel room in 1968. The next year, at the Hotel Carlton in Stockholm, she became pregnant from their late night tryst. And now, the two stood facing each other in an insane backstage scene. Eva asked Jimmy to go with her, meet his son properly. And Jimmy wouldn't put his eyes back on her, instead just stared down at the photo of baby James. A roadie wearing a Canadian tuxedo tugged on Jimmy's shirt, put a red-hot roach up to his face, and Jimmy did his best to inhale whatever smoke was coming off of it. Glasses clinked together in the back of the room, laughter, bellowing voices, Norman Greenbaum speared in the sky, galloping from a tiny transistor radio cranked up to full blast on a catering table rife with decimated snacks. Eva started to plead with Jimmy again, but his entourage beat her to the punch. More hands reached out from the crowd, laid themselves on Jimmy's arms. People beckoned, Jimmy, over here. Jimmy, you gotta meet this guy. Jimmy, how did you feel the show went? And Jimmy was pulled into the breach. Eva stood alone, holding her tiny photo of James and felt her goddess powers fade. She knew it then. She'd been replaced by another seductress, fame. After Jimmy's death, Diana Carpenter would lose her battle to get Tamika recognized as Jimmy's daughter but Swedish courts would recognize James Sundquist as Jimmy's son. The decision didn't mean anything in the States, so Eva filed another suit in order to get financial support for James from Jimmy's estate. Hoping to avoid too much press, Al Hendricks, Jimmy's dad, settled with a $1 million payout, short money. In September 1970, however, Eva's visit and Diana's lawsuit were but a few of the things weighing on Jimmy's worried mind. He continued to obsess over the direction of his music, on whether or not Michael Jeffrey should continue to be his manager, the unceasing reminder of his own mortality, and now, babies. Could they be his babies? All of these things, though, took a backseat in his mind on the day he jumped into a helicopter to narrowly escape a burning stage and a nihilist audience. On that day, he simply wondered if he would make it off of that German island alive. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. 
The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and Season 2 will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learned something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.